0: So as we went last time I was with you, and, and I know Rick covered uh, an overview of Philippians, m- covered more on joy than, than the idea of happiness, but when we covered happiness, the highest virtue of man, the highest good of man, happiness is shed, happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scornful, his delight is in the law of the Lord, upon that law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of living water that produces its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper." Not so the wicked, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. So this law, this governance, this, this contemplation of civic responsibility, where's the church's role in all this? And why is it that this word "happiness" was so critical to the psalmist, so critical to the Lord? And considering Aristotle, who sets this ethics, which is the, the pursuit of the highest good, why is it that our founders would put into our birth certificate that word not once but twice, that would cause us to go to war with the British Empire? And why is it so important for us to revisit? And what is this awakening that the church has to experience? Or it's actually, I think, on the threshold of experiencing. Especially if there's going to be an awakening and a revival in California. Because I don't know about you, but if you're content with the way things are now in the government and you just love it, let me know. Let me know. And if you're really thrilled about it, for your grandkids and your children... Your great-grandkids, just take a look at the curriculum coming down the pipe. And it's already here. And it will be thrust upon your children. And we, we, we would hear speakers come forward and declare these things. And the fact that, you know, the, the declaration, please, and you heard this from Charlie, I said, don't send your kids to a university. It's just, just the, the, the aspect that it's complete indoctrination. And this is one of the challenges that was put before us. The professors at these secular universities, progressive universities, are more committed to teaching your children than the pulpits in America are. Now, you, you, well, I don't know about that, and we just want to put our head in the sand. This is Jordan Peterson. It's a video I'm about to show. Are we ready back there? This is a video from Jordan Peterson contending with a young girl that is overwhelmed by climate change. Now Jordan Peterson doesn't know the Lord although he's taken time off since I think his wife has passed away to explore the claims of Christ but this man started an awakening in in young people because he refused to say there's more than two genders. And you go on Facebook and there's over 50, I think 56 genders now that you can choose from. And, And here we are, it is absolute, listen, it's absolute, pay attention, absolute chaos and we'll cover that momentarily because to understand this concept of happiness, virtue, the highest good of man, you have to understand why God has commanded this and where it came from. And we're gonna go from Genesis and we'll end in Philippians which is where Rick was last week. But watch this video and see where the youth of our, of our nation are today and how Jordan Peterson, a Canadian whose nation is far more secular progressive and he, he was a tenured professor who has been vehemently attacked by simply stating similar things to what you're about to hear roll the video so what
1: is your advice to young people when you talk about you need to be individually responsible but when there are things that are so far out of our control like climate catastrophe like the precarious job economy like you know the economic crisis, what is your answer do you to think that you're worse off than questions? your you
2: think that you're worse off than your grandparents
1: I think there are different challenges. Do
2: you think you're worse off than your grandparents? The argument, I think, is that individual responsibility does not change um, the climate, does not fix the problem that needs global collective responsibility. So I think that's the core of the question. Do you have a, a theory about that? Well, fundamentally, I'm a psychologist. And my experience has been that people can do a tremendous amount of good for themselves and for the people who are immediately around them, by looking to their own inadequacies and their own flaws and the things that they're not doing in their lives and starting to build themselves up as more powerful individuals. And if they're capable of doing that, and then they're capable of expanding their career. And if they're capable of expanding their career and their competence, then they're capable of taking their place in the community as effective leaders. And then they're capable of making wise decisions instead of unwise decisions when it comes to making collective political decisions, I'm not suggesting in the least, and have never suggested that there's no domain for social action, I'm suggesting that people who don't have their own houses in order should be very careful before they go about reorganizing the world, which happens in many ways. (laughs) So, can I just, just to, if a young person believes that the uh, climate, the global warming, Problem on the climate is something that needs to be tackled quickly. And they can't wait until they grow up and become prime ministers to do it. Do do you think collective responsibility overrides individual responsibility in a huge issue like that? No. (laughs) Okay. I don't! I, I think that generally... I think that generally... I think that generally people... I think generally people have things that are more within their personal purview that are more difficult to deal with and that they're avoiding, and that generally the way they avoid them is by adopting uh, pseudo-moralistic stances on large-scale social issues so that they look good to their friends and their neighbors. That's what it looks like. Uh,
1: (laughs) A major difference between the right and the left concerns the way each seeks to improve society. Conservatives believe that the way to a better society is almost always through the moral improvement of the individual, by each person doing battle with his or her own weaknesses and flaws." It is true that in violent and evil societies such as fascist, communist, or Islamist tyrannies, the individual must be preoccupied with battling outside forces. Almost everywhere else, though, certainly in a free and decent country such as America, the greatest battle of the individual must be with inner forces, that is, with his or her moral failings. The Left, on the other hand, believes that the way to a better society is almost always through doing battle with society's moral failings. Thus, in America, the Left concentrates its efforts on combating sexism, racism, intolerance, xenophobia, homophobia, Islamophobia, and the many other evils that the Left believes permeate American society. One important consequence of this left-right distinction is that those on the left are far more preoccupied with politics than those on the right. Since the left is so much more interested in fixing society than in fixing the individual, politics inevitably becomes the vehicle for societal improvement. That's why whenever the term activist is used, we almost always assume that the term refers to someone on the left. Another consequence of this left-right difference is that since conservatives believe society has changed one person at a time, they accept that change happens gradually. This isn't fast enough for the left, which is always and everywhere focused on social revolution. An excellent example of this was a statement by the then-presidential candidate Barack Obama just days before his first election in 2008. To a rapturous audience, he declared, we are five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. Conservatives not only have no interest in fundamentally transforming the United States of America, they are strongly opposed to doing so. Conservatives understand that fundamentally transforming any society that isn't fundamentally bad, not to mention transforming what is one of the most decent societies in history, can only make the society worse. Conservatives believe that America can be improved, but should not be transformed, let alone fundamentally transformed. The founders of the United States recognized that the transformation that every generation must work on is the moral transformation of each citizen. Thus, character development was at the core of both child-rearing and of young people's education from elementary school through college. As John Adams, the second president, said, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. And in the words of Benjamin Franklin, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. Why is that? Because freedom requires self-control. The freer the society, the more self-control is necessary. If the majority of people don't control themselves, the state, meaning an ever more powerful government, will have to control them. From the founding of the United States until the 1960's, schools and parents concentrated on character education. But with the ascent of left-wing ideas, character education has all but disappeared from American schools. Instead, children are taught not to focus on their flaws, but on America's. Social issues have replaced character education. An example is a new K-12 science curriculum, The Next Generation of Science Standards, which will teach young Americans starting in kindergarten about global warming. And when they get to college, American young people will be taught about the need to fight economic inequality, white privilege, and the alleged rape culture on their campuses. Ironically, if there really is a rape culture that permeates American college campuses, The only reason would have to be that there was so little character education in our schools, or for that matter, at home. Fathers and religion, historically the two primary conveyors of self-control, are non-existent in the lives of millions of American children. We are now producing vast numbers of Americans who are passionate about fixing America while doing next to nothing about fixing their own character. The problem, however, is that you can't make society better unless you first make its people better. I'm Dennis Prager.
0: So that brings us to uh, the study on happiness. And um, finishing up Aristotle's book on ethics, I want to read to you a couple of, of insights. Aristotle describes happiness as being at work, being at work, and it differs from an active condition, since the happy man must be actually doing the activity of happiness, and we go back to what is happiness. Happiness is the man who does not walk in the counseling ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's this idea of being aligned with what God desires, we're creating the image of God, Endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, among those being life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, virtue. The idea is happiness is operating in the context for which God designed you. Yes? No, okay. Yes? Yes. Operating in the context for which God designed you. Aristotle would describe this. He says, this activity is more concerned with the soul than with the body because the soul is is eternal. Its pleasures are also eternal. Um, In the Greek, this word intellect is part of the soul that apprehends the being of things. The intellectual virtue includes knowledge, practical wisdom, and wisdom itself, which is the knowledge of the sources or causes of a thing as well as the implication of those causes. So we've covered knowledge and wisdom, and and I'll give you an example. An animal can process um, by by instinct certain characteristical traits. But they can't contemplate the calendar and what comes in, and we're in 2020, but they can't contemplate a future in 2050. And for, for, for those of us, whatever's important to us now, and if we start to think about our retirement or our future, or what kind of a legacy we want to leave, this is the contemplative aspect of how God has created man unlike any other created being, we have this trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit, and this idea to be able to be aligned with the Lord and about his purposes. And as it says in Genesis, he caused us to be the stewards of this earth, to be able to contemplate these things and apply this on a fallen earth. And so with this concept of wisdom and this idea of seeking the right and, and wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom. And so as we apply, and this fear is respect for God, wanting to honor him. And then that wisdom comes because we contemplate what it is he desires. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be added unto you. You'll be like a tree planted by streams of living water that produce. Whatever you do will prosper. And so with this contemplation of wisdom that God's given to mankind, uh, endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, the laws of nature, nature's God to be able to comprehend. We, we can see the laws of nature. You can ignore them, but the truth will always come due and you'll be in debt if you operate in the context of a lie. You can say that there's, there's 57 genders, but it's a lie. The laws of nature de- declare it and the more you study this intricate design and you see, you, 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 you see the chromosomal aspects there may be dysphoria, but there's two genders. And to say otherwise, you're watching biological females having their facial bones broken by biological males who are saying that they're females. You're watching biological women who have worked hard to hold the... the, the, the the cycling records in, in one of the states in the East Coast, all shattered by a biological male who declares himself to be a woman, breaking all the records. It, it, the, the lie is going to come, and, and it's going to require the debt to be paid. And it's chaos. It's chaos. And you can exchange the truth for a lie, and you're going to inundate society, and we're going to reap what we sow. And so the Lord is saying this wisdom is critical and it's the, it's the content of happiness and this idea of being at work, seeking the highest good, which is alignment with the Lord. Aristotle is not so much naming discrete parts of the soul as he's describing the phenomenon of human experience. There's a kind of knowing that simply apprehends the nature of things. And our founder said, The laws of nature and nature's God. It is done by examination. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand the laws of gravity. And I don't care if you teach everyone in the school that gravity doesn't exist and they all run off a cliff because the teachers have convinced them and indoctrinated them that you will be able to fly. It doesn't matter. The truth will always be true and a lie will always be in debt to the truth and that debt will be called on and you will die. Okay. A little too heavy for a Wednesday night? I'm sorry. This author says, we behold the very sources of knowledge, but these moments are fleeting because human beings are mortal and limited. We're bound by time. We're bound by time. We have a beginning and an end. Now we do have an eternal soul. We do comprehend, unlike any other creature, the existence of God. And whether we deny his existence or we say he's Santa Claus, it's fascinating to me that people who are atheists fight so hard to say God doesn't exist. I don't fight hard to tell people Santa doesn't exist. I don't fight hard to tell people the Easter Bunny doesn't exist. But living in a world that has order and design and looking at the intricacies of the human body and and the way it operates, you, you have got to shelve your brain to embrace this. And yet we allow this, and so does the church. We support it. You may or may not tithe to the church. Tithe means a tenth. You may or may not. I'll tell you who you. You tithe to the secular, progressive nightmare that has turned this into a place where your children no longer want to live and you've never questioned it or fought it. And those are called taxes. And yet in a constitutional republic where we have this design that is laid out in this declaration of the pursuit of happiness, where we are the king, we the people, we can invest in that, we don't. We had Dave Carney come and share the concept of 15,280,000 evangelical Christians in California, and they do nothing, nothing. And the audacity of, of a pastor saying to the congregation, how many of you are registered to vote? Please stand up. Don't, I'm just saying it. And they stand up and you say, for the rest of you who are not registered, it is your Christian duty to go register. Next week we're going to ask the same question. I hope and pray you stand. And then they may leave the church. But call them to account. There's an entire generation that requires us to invest in their lives for this idea of the pursuit of happiness, which is what we see in the Psalms and what we see in Galatians 3 and Romans 4. The Greek term, and this is what's interesting, when it comes to this idea of happiness and virtue, it boils down to a very intricate aspect of the Scriptures, and it's this idea of meditating or contemplating. to, To meditate on God's word day and night. Blessed is a man who does not, but it says he meditates on God's word. He contemplates. Contemplation is the noblest human activity because the most perfect thing in us, the intellect, rests in the most perfect thing that exists, the divine nature. We contemplate. Lord, when I consider the heavens, your handiwork, and your voice speaking to us now. God calls us to contemplate, meditate, and to dwell and to be diligent to do these things. This idea diligent is to pursue it and to, to look deeply into these things of God and to apply them to our lives. Contemplation is the activity of human happiness because it is most like the divine activity. And God is the most blessed and happiest being. And then Aristotle says this. In a, uh, no, excuse me. Shakespeare says this in Othello. You cannot be a good philosopher if if your soul is in turmoil and your time is spent on vicious self-serving activities. The young lady in the video is a perfect example. She wants to point out all the flaws around the world and America's flaws without examining her own life and the unexamined life isn't worth living. Her accountability to God instead projecting the failure of civilization as opposed to being accountable to God. And then... Closing with Aristotle's thoughts, if contemplation is the highest kind of virtue or perfection, and men, men need the help of good laws in order to be virtuous, then the philosopher depends on the statesman. Human happiness is attained within a healthy political community. Aristotle said, politics is the highest form of community because it combines two aspects morality and sociability. How do we live together in society? What is the role of the church? Our founders already considered it, looking at the scriptures and understanding the study of good. We have a sin nature. We recognize a a creator. We recognize that only a moral people can govern a republic. That the individual is accountable to God, and as we've studied all the way through the representative form government, similar to what Bill Federer did with this idea of the Jews coming out of Egypt, out of slavery, into freedom, establishing a representative form of government over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and living 40 years without a standing, excuse me, without a standing police force or an army, but living together in peace because of the downloaded moral app that God had given. And the greatest of the Ten Commandments is the one that's right in the middle. And I loved it what Dennis pointed out. He said... Honor thy mother and father, it'll go well with you. You'll live long on the earth. And it's the one because the first five is our relationship with God. Second five is our relationship with man. But the fifth commandment applies to God and to mom and dad. Because if you can't submit to your mom and dad, you won't submit to the Lord. And that's the family because we're instructing them in virtue. And it's the pivotal point of the Ten Commandments that this is a critical nature. Yet we throw our children to the wolves and we pay them willingly to do this, and when someone dares to step forward and say we have got to invest in this public square, they look at you like you're from another planet. Anyone tracking me? I don't know, I'm just, maybe I'm upsetting everyone this evening. The idea, the idea of meditating, contemplating, and being diligent in this respect is a theme throughout scripture that pertains to the blessed and the happy life. Notice, the proverb says, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Diligent. You look at that that Hebrew word and the idea is to process it and to meditate on it and to be firm about invoking it. The psalmist writes in Psalm 64, all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God for they shall wisely consider his doings. The wise human being contemplates what God desires. The blessed life is one where when you get old, and this is, this is very interesting, when I watched my dog get old, he had no cares and no concerns. He didn't know he was getting old. He didn't know what time was. He just thought, it's another day. Am I getting dog food? <laughs> oh, dog food. A little harder to chew, not sure why. I'm slower to get to the thing, but I'm still as excited. But for us, when we get older, and, and now at fifty-five, I'm, I'm looking back further than I'm going to be able to see forward. And and as I'm looking back, I don't look back in disdain like, ah, oh, that's awful. I have pleasant memories, and 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 God works all things together for good and even the mistakes he's worked together for good and forgetting in some respects what is behind, striving for what is ahead and I am preparing for the day that I will be absent from the body, present with the Lord and he will say to, to me, well done thou good and faithful servant and the idea is God, I came to this earth as your poema, your workmanship that you would purpose beforehand these works that I would do on this earth to, to bring your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven to help bring order Into this chaos and to contemplate these things. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, lived, said in Ecclesiastes, for I consider all this in my heart so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. I, I contemplate this. I consider this. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. Here's the classic thing. How often do we sit with our children and teach them the word that they would contemplate and consider these things? Let alone how often do we do and how often do we demand it within our society? How do we strive to implement these things so that we can can bring a just society, this idea, even to, to to the Greek, to the philosopher of Aristotle that would realize the statesman pursuing virtue or this happy life This contemplation of of virtue and truth has to be done through the statesman, that politics is the the way we live together. Whatever is good, whatever is true, dwell on these things. To focus on that and and demand it. Yet somehow there's a disconnect between we, we feel God's presence in worship, but somehow outside the walls of this we have no responsibility. It doesn't equate. And to this day, churches are still, and I believe there's going to be a reformation or an awakening in relation to this. Because every generation previous to us that ever saw a revival and an awakening, they stepped into the public square. They were sick of watching lives destroyed by bad laws that just corrupted and destroyed the young. When are we gonna say enough is enough? How many abortions need to happen? How much more trafficking needs to occur? What what does God say about the immigrant? What does God say about a child? What does God say about the unborn? Have we studied the scriptures? And we say, oh, that's the Old Testament. Those are laws. We've been saved by grace. we, we We can't keep the law and we're saved by grace. And that's the gospel, bro. No, it's not. It goes deeper. It begins with the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created, the word created means barach, out of nothing, God created something. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then it says the earth was without form and void. Now what's interesting about that concept, without form and void, tohu and bohu, it means chaos and waste. The earth was without form. It was chaotic and it was void of substance. It was waste. And darkness was on the face of the deep and the spirit of God ho- hovered over the face of the waters. There's only three things he creates in the seven days of creation, but the rest, he, pra- he brings order out of chaos. And the reason why the first verse is so critical is because in the beginning, God created. If you can't accept that f- first verse, you and I are vastly different and your idea of virtue is about virtue signaling. You're going to look at everything but yourself because you're not accountable to anyone. There's no absolutes in your life. And I'm going to be the enemy because you're gonna prove why you're better than I am. Oh, you're white. You're male. You're American. You're privileged. You can go on and on. But the reality of it is, the job of mankind is to bring order out of the chaos. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And you go on to read, he brings order out of chaos. He sets the moon and the stars and the sun and the day, and he does all of that. Separates the water from the land, he creates order. Male and female, he created them in his image. It's all there. Now, fascinating that's the divergent. A world without God and a world with God. The only thing a world without God can do is create chaos. They can only deconstruct. They can't build. America is not a virtuous nation. We slaughtered our Indians. We embraced slavery. We, we have white privilege. We can go on and on deconstruct there's not two genders there's 57 or you go to brown and there's over 100 you deconstruct you deconstruct the family the order of family you deconstruct the the roles and the responsibilities and and you 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 replace the truth with a lie and then we watch we watch you violate the Ten Commandments. You, you apply socialism that hasn't worked in 40 nations in the history of the, of the world. And here, this experiment where, we, where you're given a bottom-up form of government, where you're given the opportunity to be accountable to God and live in freedom by establishing this truth and contemplating this God and living your life along those lines. And now all of a sudden you have purpose and meaning and you're, you're the one that uses this blessedness because blessedness is this idea of contemplation It's this idea of meditating. And as you meditate on the truths of God, you start to construct a society. And as you grow older, you don't grow older with regret. You haven't lived for yourself. You live with contentment because of what you've invested, not only in in those behind you, but those who will come after you. You live a virtuous life. One that seeks to honor God in everything you do. And this is this concept of happiness that is inundated in the scriptures. It's not, about, it, it, it's, it's not about the unexamined life. Two interesting people here. Two interesting people. Anyone know the man on the right by chance? Anyone ever read the book My Utmost for His Highest? It's, Oswald Chambers, it's the second most produced book in the Western world to the Bible. My utmost, for his highest. I've read that probably 11 times in its entirety. Do you know that he didn't write a word of it? Did you hear me? He didn't write one single word of it. I have his entire commentary on Proverbs. Do you know he didn't write a word of it? Not one. He, copious books with his name on it, didn't write a word of it. The person on the left wrote it all. Can anyone tell me her name? Mrs. Chambers. <laughs> Mrs. Chambers. <laughs> You're right. Her name is Biddy. Biddy Chambers. Her husband died of an appendicitis or influenza In Egypt. And he didn't live a long life. I'll read this to you. At 27, Oswald Chambers experienced a deepening of his faith, and four years later, he quit his teaching job to become the itinerant preacher. He shared God's truths in Great Britain, America, Japan, Egypt. Uh, Then at the age of 43, he died while serving as a chaplain to the British Army in Egypt during World War I. Everything Chambers taught would have been lost were it not for his wife who took meticulous notes whenever he spoke. After Oswald's death, Biddy Chambers edited and published over 30 books, my utmost first highest, being the most well-known. Each of us has an important kingdom to work to do, and we'll be rewarded when we do it faithfully, whether anyone else knows about it or not. Few recognize the name Biddy Chambers, but her act of love has blessed millions of people who have read Chambers' truth-filled devotions. And here's a kicker. My utmost for his highest, she had finished the manuscript and it burned in a fire. She had to go back and rewrite every word of it. She didn't do it once, she did it twice. Nobody knows Biddy Chambers. I'll tell you what, there's thousands in heaven who do, if not more. And this is a woman who did this as a widow and had lost her husband. And the lives that have been affected by these two lives, Oswald Chambers would have just been another minister that came and went. But somebody meticulously decided to write these things down. We're to be putting our hands to the things of the Lord. You just think of these folks that are contemplative, that that consider the deep things of God, that have given us the ability, and this is what I loved about the American Renewal Project. I sat at the feet of brilliant men who outlined for me a road map by intense study and contemplation of truth that allowed me to see what my role is in life. Grateful to them. And the thoughts that they put together were phenomenal. And, and I've been blessed through, through eons in relation to men and women like that. Here are two more. You might know the, the guy on the right. Anyone? C.S. Lewis. Anyone know the guy on the left? J.R. Tolkien. These men had were instruments of unbelievable insight that formulated the Western world and Christendom. And they labored tirelessly on behalf of these works. Mere Christianity is responsible for more people being in heaven probably than anything I've ever done in the entirety of my life for certain. Here's another one. Just in case you're going, oh, a little sexist. and then, yeah, Elizabeth Elliot. Gates of Splendor. Elizabeth Elliot, her writings have been instrumental in Christendom. Her contemplation, her thoughts, she and her husband were responsible for the greatest mission movement in the history of America. And her husband died on the mission field, the Aquah Indians. And yet, here are men and women who have orchestrated the development of of truthful thought that has, moved, that has been responsible for moving generations in a life of happiness. Her works on marriage, her works on, on, on looking for the right spouse and the way she waited for Jim Elliot. You look at C.S. Lewis's work on, on mere Christianity and the way that he contemplates things and his intellectual mind and his astute ability and, and J.R. Tolkien and you go through all of it. Oswald Chambers, stuff like that, you just have to take it word by word, it's so amazing. And Biddy Chambers did all that. And a way to articulate it and put it into written format. And the lives have been affected by men and women who have lived such a life as to build his kingdom on the earth. Because they labored. And they contended. And they left it for generations and they raised their children in accordance with that concept. And yet here we are in this day and age where we throw our children to the, to the lions. And we just don't think a thing about it we live in a culture we don't even contend for it and the thing that hit me the most and and Charlie and I were talking about this at dinner we had just left Dennis Prager's talk and he said something that was fascinating and he, I don't even think he knew he said it the, the man has wisdom because he's he's contemplated the things of the lord you, you listen to him speak and you're you're moved by it it has substance and as and as he wrote this I, 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 or as he said this we both wrote it down and discussed it over dinner and then this morning I woke up to a text from a friend and I've put, I've put Dennis Prager's words at, at the top it's, it's two lines and then I've put my friend's text at the bottom because he sat through this meeting and he contemplated the, the, the church's apathy Dennis Prager said America's faults are universal, are universal but America's positives are unique I'll explain that momentarily my friend chimed in and said the absurdity of the church that thinks it can pray for a house and not pay for a house and thinking that they can pray for freedom that they're not willing to pay for. We listen to the deconstruction, the chaos created by school systems that tell us that we've murdered Indians, that we, we enslaved human beings. All of America's faults are universal. Name one society that has never done that. Even the Indians who were here before us got the land. It wasn't some Shangri-La. They all murdered and everybody enslaved. And, and all of our faults are universal to any other culture in the history of the world, but the uniqueness of America, the positives are ours. We're the ones who came up with due process. Where? From the scriptures. We abolished slavery. Granted, 35 years after Great Britain did, but we did it. We're the ones who... who put in force child labor laws, women's suffrage. We're the ones who contended for civil rights. We're the ones who were designed in this realm that said all men are created equal. And the only way, the only way, if you do not contemplate these truths and contend for the souls of men to make a society, a political society of morality and sociability, if you do not contend, the only thing you can do is deconstruct. And you say you're a progressive. You're not. You're a deconstructive individual. You can only destroy and pit one individual against another. And instead of examining your life before God, you project your virtue signaling by demeaning another human being. And the absurdity of the church that thinks it can pray for a house and not pay for a house and thinking that they can pray for freedom that they're not willing to pay for. He said this, things cost money. Freedom must be bought and paid for and fought and prayed for. If this is not the purpose of the church, freedom, then we resolve ourselves to slavery. Who else is going to tell people the truth? Who else is going to infuse a culture with the presence of what God desires to bring order out of chaos? Who else? Why is it that our founders gave us the First Amendment to give us that freedom to exercise that religion and to impart it? Why must we stay in the enclave and disregard all the implosion and the chaos around us without engaging it? And that critical thought and that contemplation and that application of, of happiness is a life that is lived To bring order out of chaos. Aristotle said, to look at what sorts of things preserve and destroy cities and what sorts of things uh, do so for each sort of constitution and for what reason some are governed well and others are the reverse. That's where they came up with the word constitution, which means statute. This idea of how do we live together? If happiness is the highest virtue, how do we apply it in such a way that everyone flourishes? That's why our founders considered it so vital. That's why the pulpits in America preached it. And by the way, if you wanna know where the Declaration of, uh, of, of Independence came from, read about Thomas Hooker, the father of the Constitution. Oh, I'm sorry, Reverend Thomas Hooker. Just read about him. That's where it came from. First speaker of the house was Franklin Muhlenberg. Oh, I'm sorry, he was a minister. Was a moral pietist, but realized We will never have a government that is virtuous without the presence of God. He wanted people to be set free. If you want to live the highest and happiest kind of life, take care that you live in a civil society where you are free. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And then this. For when these things have been examined, perhaps we might also have more insight into what sort of constitution is best and how each sort is best arranged. And by using what laws and customs, so having made a beginning, let us discuss it. And this was the conclusion of the book of ethics. Aristotle said, if we're going to look at what is good and the highest virtue is happiness, and he comes to the conclusion in chapter 10 of the book of ethics, he says... We need to create a constitution that will allow people to flourish in the capacity for which we've come to understand. And we have to govern one another. And he goes straight from ethics into his book on politics. You wonder if the church supports this. I don't know about the church, but I know the Lord does. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You know what meditate means? Understand how to apply them. Seek God's highest. Implement that in the culture in which you live. It's it's not about just simply being saved by grace and getting your get out of hell free card. It's about looking and saying, What would you have me do? I want a house, but I don't want to pay for it. I want freedom, but I don't want to labor for it. Too bad. That's not an option in Christendom. Blessed is the man. Oh, how happy. And you know what? You live your life for this purpose. It's meaningful. It's fulfilling. It has substance. It blesses the heart of the Father. It changes culture. It saves lives. It sets people free. Oh, it'll come at a cost. But no more than what Jesus paid for you? Everything? Is it worth it? Well, if the idea in the concept of living with a conscience is that you'll one day stand before God and give an accounting of your life, what will you say? Oh, the odds were overwhelming. There wasn't much I could do. I would have just been excoriated. Oh, oh, Okay, well, why don't you go talk to Gideon? Well, I struggle with personal issues and I really didn't feel as though I had the, okay, great, why don't you go talk with David or Samson? You know, I I just, I just, I, I, I just don't see why we have to be so conflicting and, and cause, cause division. Why don't you go talk to Paul. Why, you know, Lord, I would do more for you, but I, my back hurts. Oh, why don't you go talk to Isaiah when you get to heaven, who was cut in half, and he'll be standing by himself. And the apostle Paul, who was blind, or, or, or who had been beheaded, Peter, I think it was Peter, he'll be holding his head going, now tell me your problem. Really, what what's holding us back? This is exciting. This is this is a life worth living. Whatever whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good, report. If there's anything of virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate, which means contemplate to activate. Not just go, oh yeah, that's just so awesome. I just I feel God's presence. Go do something. You were created beforehand. Your poem or yours workmanship. Go invest it in the warp and the woof of the fabric of the world in which you live. And I have news for you. It will be a blessed and happy life. Otherwise, you'll live your entire life with regret. Who wants that? Who wants that? You know, I traveled the world. (laughs) You, you, you'll be like, what was I thinking? I traveled the world. You, you should have seen what I amassed in wealth. And I held it like Daffy Duck. Mine, 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 whatever. Wealth, pleasure, honor. The highest is happiness. What is happiness? Contemplating and doing. Contemplating and activating. Meditating and activating what God desires. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a happy life, it really is.